Good evening, everyone. Please take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is our scripture reading. And the message this evening is on solus Christus, Christ alone. And the first part of my message to you this evening, I'd like to talk a little bit about the history of why that's such an important Reformation slogan, Christ alone, and then we'll walk through verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1 here in the second half. So Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. This is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray, please. Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather here again this evening. We pray your blessing upon our time in your word as we contemplate these important truths that uh, are still important, are perpetually relevant to our lives and to the world. And we pray that we would have a better understanding of why Christ alone is the Savior, why Christ is the only Redeemer. And we pray you'd protect us from any teaching or idea that would ever lead us astray from that glorious truth. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. In his excellent book titled, Mary, Another Redeemer? Question mark, uh, Dr. James White records this story. It caught my eye, a small booklet tucked in the fold of a chair in the corner. I normally wouldn't have seen it, but it was sticking out just enough to be seen. I picked it up. The blue and white cover bore the title, Devotions in Honor of Our Mother of Perpetual Help. I thumbed through the booklet, scanning a few of the prayers it contained. My eyes caught a line about my eternal salvation. So I backed up and started from the beginning, and this is the prayer uh, that the Roman Catholic Church endorses, promotes, encourages people to pray to the Virgin Mary. Listen, quote, O Mother of Perpetual Help, Thou art the dispenser of all the goods which God grants to us miserable sinners. And for this reason, he has made thee so powerful, so rich, and so bountiful, that thou mayest help us in our misery. Thou art the advocate of the most wretched and abandoned sinners who have recourse to thee. Come then to my help, dearest mother, for I recommend myself to thee. In thy hands I place my eternal salvation. And to thee do I entrust my soul. Count me among thy most devoted servants. Take me under thy protection, and it is enough for me. For if thou protect me, dear mother, I fear nothing, not from my sins, because thou wilt obtain for me the pardon of them, nor from the devils, because thou art more powerful than all hell together, nor even from Jesus." My judge himself, because by one prayer from thee, he will be appeased. But one thing I fear, that in the hour of temptation, I may neglect to call on thee, and thus perish miserably. Obtain for me, then, the pardon of my sins, love of Jesus, final perseverance, and the grace always to have recourse to thee, O mother of perpetual help. And White says this, At first I could not believe what I had just read, so I ran back, back through the first few lines. Was this prayer really saying that the petitioner did not fear his or her sins, the devils, and Jesus? That's what it said. I shook my head in disbelief. 
A few years later, I found myself in a radio studio in Boston, Massachusetts, doing a radio discussion with a former Protestant named, uh, a former Protestant turned Roman Catholic named Jerry Matatix. The topic was Mary and the Saints. Mr. Matatix and I were scheduled to do two public debates at Boston College over the course of the next week, but today we were live on the air, taking calls on the subject of prayers to Mary and the Saints. As I packed for the trip, I found the little blue and white booklet and decided to bring it along. Now I reached into my bag and brought it out. Surely, quoting this prayer would bring about a strong reaction from Mr. Matatix. Surely, he would deny that such a prayer is proper and that the people who had written it were just going overboard in their piety. The talk show host involuntarily gasped as I read the final lines, and as I put, put the booklet down, I looked across at my opponent, waiting for the expected response. The host likewise turned to Mr. Matatix. He was quiet for a moment, and then he spoke. Mr. White, he began, I can only hope that someday you too will pray that prayer. End quote. I want to be as clear with you as I can possibly be. Anyone who prays that prayer is damned lost. Cannot possibly know Jesus. Cannot possibly know Jesus. If you pray to someone to save you from Jesus, you don't know Jesus. It's a false Jesus. It's another Jesus. It's another Christ, another gospel, another spirit. Question 21 of the shorter catechism is the next question after the one I read to you this morning. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The answer is, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. The very first time I ever read the Shorter Catechism, I wondered, why would they say the only Redeemer? I mean, the question is, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? Shouldn't the answer just say, the Redeemer of God's elect is Jesus Christ? Why would they say the only Redeemer? Why is that in there? Why do they say Christ alone, the only Redeemer? We're going to find out. When Martin Luther first had what historians and scholars call his evangelical breakthrough, Luther was very zealous to make his findings known to others. And keep in mind, this guy was a monk in a Roman Catholic monastery. Luther had entered that monastery because of a vow that he made to a saint, Saint Anne, the patron saint of minors. His father was a coal miner. And Luther was running home in a storm, and a bolt of lightning hit the ground next to him, and he fell down to the ground and said, Help me, St. Anne. If you do, I will become a monk. So he entered the monastery because of praying to saints. He entered that monastery troubled by his own sinfulness. He was extremely devout in his monastic duties. The historians all record this. He fasted often. He prayed for hours on end. He wore out confessors with detailed confessions about the most trivial sins imaginable. Even Luther's mentor there in the monastery, a guy named Johann Staupitz, said to him once, I have never once heard you confess anything even remotely interesting. After all, how much trouble can you really get in in a monastery anyway? The biographer Roland Bainton, in his monumental book, I highly recommend you read it, called Here I Stand, A Life of Martin Luther. Wonderful book. He said this, quote, The assiduous confessing certainly succeeded in clearing up any major transgressions, the leftovers with which Luther kept trotting in appeared to Staupitz to be only the scruples of a sick soul. Look here, said Staupitz to Luther, if you expect Christ to forgive you, come in with something to forgive. 
parasite, blasphemy, adultery, or something, instead of all these peccadilloes. But Luther's question was not whether or not his sins were big or little, but whether they had all been confessed. The great difficulty which he encountered was, to be sure, that everything had been recalled, and he learned from experience the cleverness of memory in protecting the ego, and he was frightened when, after six hours of confessing, he could still go out and then think of something that had eluded his memory, end quote. You see, the issue was Luther knew better. Luther knew better. The Holy Spirit of God was pulling the curtains back from Luther's spiritual eyes and giving him a glimpse of what he really was. Remember James White and Jerry Matatix? Jerry Matatix was once upon a time a PCA minister, apostatized and became a Roman Catholic, a Roman Catholic apologist, a defender of the Catholic faith. And in one of those debates he did with James White, I've listened to those debates, Matatix said Luther just had an extreme Augustinian understanding of salvation, and he had an overactive conscience. And White and many others would say, no, he didn't have an overactive conscience. He was under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. And when you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, nothing will work to bring you peace except the true gospel. That's what happened with Luther. Luther knew better. He knew he was a depraved, depraved, sinful man. No matter what Rome gave him to do, he would do it. And it wouldn't relieve his conscience. He still knew he was condemned before God. If, if God really is God and God really is holy, if he, if he knows everything, then I'm lost. And he knew that. God is a righteous judge. He cannot tolerate any sin in his presence or before his eyes. And when Luther's superiors in that monastery, when they saw how troubled he still was, they decided to send him off to the newly founded University of Wittenberg in Germany. And they made him a professor of scripture. And from Rome's perspective, that was certainly a tactical blunder on their part. Luther's intensive study of the Word of God, that's where he found the Gospel. That's where he found Jesus. In particular, the impact of Paul's letter to the Romans was enormous upon Luther's life. And as he read that epistle, he contemplated that passage that we just read there. He contemplated it. I am not ashamed of the Gospel of Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And Luther wrote this, quote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, that righteousness whereby God is just in punishing us for our sins. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in my conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God. Rather, I hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day, I pondered it until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God and the statement, the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it came to be inexpressibly sweet and greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. And listen to this. He says, if you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. 
For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. End quote. He finally got the gospel. Why, why was he so troubled? Why did he think he was going to go to hell? Because he was trying to become righteous. He was trying to do enough to satisfy God. And when the Holy Spirit's convicting you of your sin, then it's not going to work. Solus Christus, the Latin Christ alone. Why is that particular sola? Remember, there's five Reformation solas. Solus Christus is one of them. Why is that one so important? Why is it essential for Christians to understand what Christ alone really means? Throughout Luther's days as a Roman Catholic monk, you see, he was given many things other than Christ to try to help him get to heaven, to try to give him a sense of peace in his conscience. Luther took a pilgrimage to Rome, and he viewed relics. Luther went to Mass. Luther went to confession. Luther prayed to and knew about saints, and he looked, for, looked to saints for help. Luther understood the idea of purgatory, and he still believed in purgatory when he wrote the 95 Theses. If you don't know what purgatory is, purgatory is the idea that sin has different levels. And if you commit mortal sin, something that's really serious, you kill the sanctifying grace that was infused into your soul at your baptism. And if you die like that, you will go to hell. So if you commit mortal sin, you kill the grace that, that was saving you before, and now it's gone. You have to go to a priest, you have to do penance, you have to get absolution from the priest, and then that grace is restored to you, but you might still have some temporal punishments left from your venial sins. And if you die without having suffered enough for your venial sins, you have to go to a place called purgatory. Purgatory is where you suffer for your sins before you can go to heaven. I remember thinking... If someone asked me, come up with an idea that would deny the all-sufficiency of the work of Christ. Purgatory. Purgatory. You have to suffer for your own sins. In fact, the Latin phrase that their dogmaticians use, their systematicians, their theologians use is satis passio. Satis passio is Latin for suffering of atonement. What do you do in purgatory? You atone for your own sins by your own suffering. Luther believed in that. He, he thought purgatory maybe. Maybe that would work. He tried every arrow in Rome's quiver, but nothing worked. He was still lost and hopeless, and he knew it. He was so very sad about what he knew to be true. He knew he was a sinner. And when he was judged by the holy God, he would be justly and righteously condemned to hell forever. He knew that that was going to happen. But when he finally saw the gospel, all of that changed. Luther saw that what God demands from us in his law and those Ten Commandments that none of us keep perfectly, what God demands from us in the law, he freely gives to us apart from works by faith alone in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when Luther discovered it, when he saw it in the New Testament and laid hold of it and was saved, he wanted to share it with everybody. And he shared it with his leaders there in that monastery. He shared it with Staupus. He told him, it's faith alone and Christ alone. It's Christ's righteousness alone that gets us into heaven. And after watching Luther express his dismay at the, the sight of a collection of relics, you know what relics are? Relics were you know, pieces of, of teeth from the apostles and uh, pieces of straw from the manger that Jesus was laid in and all kinds of other stuff like that. Staupitz saw Luther was revolted by this. And he said to Luther, if you leave the Christian to live only by faith without the crutches of visible relics, and pilgrimages, and purgatory, and Mary, what will you put in their place? And Luther said, Christ. A man only needs Jesus Christ. Not Mary, not saints, not pilgrimages, not good works, not relics, not masses, not priestly confession, not purgatory, not the Pope, not fasting, only Christ. 
Christ alone. And that's why the Westminster Divines, writing just a short time after the age of Luther and the Lutheran Reformation, that's why they said, who is the Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. What will we put in the place of popes and purgatory, indulgences, works, relics, penance, priests, and pilgrimages? Christ. This confession of Luther's was the lifeblood of his sin-weary soul. But like the Roman Christians who received Paul's letter so long ago before this, believing in the one true gospel and rejecting all of its counterfeit competitors, it would cost Luther dearly. It would cost him dearly. And that's why Romans 1, 16 and 17 is always relevant. You still have your Bible open to it? Look at the opening phrase of verse 16. What does Paul say there? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I want to warn you, the temptation is going to be to be ashamed, to be quiet about your Christian faith and your Christian commitments. I mean, who wants to be ostracized and looked at as a loser or a nerd or, or one of those religious types? But you've got to embrace all that. You just have to embrace it. Let the chips fall where they may. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And if we believe it's becoming more and more difficult to be a Christian in our own country today, what we experience really cannot be compared to what so many of those early Christians experienced in those Roman times under those Roman emperors for 300 years after the coming of Christ. Remember the emperor Nero? Nero was the first Roman emperor to openly persecute the Christian faith. He would gather up Christian people, have their bodies dipped in tar, and then set on fire on pillars to light his garden parties. And he would take his guests around in chariots to look at Christian people burning as torches to light his garden in the evening and would mock them saying, behold, the light of the world. Yes, it's becoming less and less popular to be a Christian today in America, but most of us today would fall into the category Hebrews 12.4 describes, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed. Most of us have never had bloodshed for our faith in Christ. So whatever our situation, whatever our political climate, we are to be unashamed of the gospel, unashamed of Christ and his word, and unashamed of what is right, what still is a sin today. I don't care how many people in our culture or how many doctors get on TV and tell us it's all natural to be gay or LGBTQI or STUV, whatever other letters are coming, it's still wrong, it's still sinful, and you and I need to let people know that. We need to let them know we don't go along with this stuff. It's very easy for me to say that from this pulpit in a room full of friendly people who probably agree with most of what I'm saying. But think of Paul standing in front of mobs who wanted his blood, much the same way that Luther would stand before the Diet of Worms when his enemies wanted his blood too. Paul described himself in this way, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three. He wrote about himself, in stripes above measure. This guy had been beaten so many times, 40 lashes minus one. His body must have been a mess. He must have been a scarred up mess by the time his life was over. He says, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Sound like fun? Everybody want to be a Christian now? As I said, someone, somebody has got to write a book. Reasons you shouldn't follow Christ. 
Reasons you don't want to follow Christ. Everyone has decided to make it so easy. Walk an aisle, pray a magic prayer, and it costs people nothing. I want to let you know that's not the true gospel. That's not true either. What is being said today by the modern evangelist is just not true. People are being lied to all the time. When you experience the God-imposed antithesis, the conflict, the hatred of the enemies of Christ from the world for the sake of your biblical convictions and the biblical gospel, I say to you, never be ashamed. Never be ashamed. Luther, when he was at the Diet of Worms, when he was brought before the, the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and was given one day to consider, they put all of his books on a table in front of, them, in front of him, are those your books? Do you recant of your errors or not? And they gave him one day to consider his answer. And we know that that night there when he was in that holding place before he would appear before the council the next day, it was a sleepless night for Luther. A person who suffers for Christ, for his sake, for the gospel, for his righteousness and his law, that person will love Christ more. You realize that? A person suffers for the cause of righteousness and truth, they'll love Jesus even more. That person will have an even clearer vision of the glory that awaits them. And Jesus told us, he, he promised us blessedness. He said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You want to be a Christian? You want to be an outspoken Christian? You're going to be lied about. You'll have all kinds of evil spoken against you falsely for the sake of Christ. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, said Jesus, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Knowing how much mockery is heaped upon those who love and talk about Jesus in our culture, it might tempt some of us to be a little more quiet about, about him. But that can't happen. The only way people can revile and persecute us and say all kinds of evil against us falsely so that we're blessed for Jesus' sake is if they know we're his disciples. You've got to speak up. You've got to let people know where we're coming from, what we really believe. You have to live and speak for Jesus' sake. They can only know that we're his disciples if we love one another and if we hold to and speak about the truth of his word. In other words, we as individuals must have the same commendations that the church at Rome and Ephesus and Colossae had. People must hear about our faith in the Lord Jesus and our love for all the saints around the world, as Paul commended those churches. We must not be ashamed to be called Christians. Are you one of those? I had people say that to me when I was in the secular place. You're one of those? What, what do you mean one of those? One of those who thinks everyone's going to hell unless they believe what you believe? Yes, if someone's not forgiven of their sins, they will justly be sent to hell. That's right. They will justly be sent to hell. The book of Hebrews talks about people who were treated terribly by the world, people who refused to be ashamed of God, ashamed, refused to be ashamed of the truth. Hebrews 11:35. listen, and others were tortured not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings, of scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, listen, of whom the world was not worthy. These people were so godly. They loved the Lord more than the praises of men. They were so godly that the Holy Spirit said the world was not worthy of them living in it. Luther wasn't quiet about what the Word of God said. His commitment to Christ and his burden for lost souls around him necessitated that he speak up. Never be ashamed of Christ. Never betray him. Always remember that his glory and the sanctity of his name are more important than our lives, more important than our comfort. Many Christian people have lost their lives 
rather than openly, knowingly commit a sin against Christ. When Luther was at that council, at that Diet of Worms, Worms is the name of a, of a town in Germany, the Diet of Worms, to give his final answer to the charge of heresy that stood against him, his answer was an answer for the ages, and the people that were there wrote down what he said. He was asked by the man conducting the interview, I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, since then your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And church historians point out that Luther ended that speech with those phrases, God help me, amen, because his assumption, his assumption was that by saying that, taking a stand upon the word of God, that his life would soon be over, that he would be captured by the Inquisition, tied to a stake and burned, because so many people had already been. And thankfully, Luther was granted a safe conduct by Charles V, so technically they couldn't arrest him yet, but once that safe conduct ended, it was made clear that his life was forfeit and a bounty was put out upon him. Luther's own prince, the, the ruler of his own region where he came from in Germany, Frederick the Wise, kidnapped him so the Inquisition wouldn't kill him. And they put him up in a castle for a year in the place called Wartburg, the Wartburg Castle, and they gave him a disguise and he would ride around dressed up as Knight George for a whole year. And during that year, Luther translated the Bible into German. Let us remember the lesson that Luther taught us about the clarity of Scripture and the courage to stand for the Savior whose gospel is held forth therein. I just want to ask, how could we ever be ashamed of the one who died for us? How could we ever be ashamed of identifying ourselves with our own king? The one who bled and suffered on our behalf to secure our forgiveness, our justification, our place in heaven as children of the living God. How could we be ashamed of him? Because it's easier just to be a secret agent Christian. You ever heard that? We're, we're secret agents. No, we're not secret agents. You let the world know what you are, who you are, what you stand for. Paul's reasoning there in verse 16 is, is so simple. Why are we not ashamed of the gospel? It's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. I'm not going to spend eternity in agony, in hell, because of Christ. How can I be ashamed of him, my king, who saved me? How can we be ashamed of the gospel? How can we be ashamed of the only hope of mankind? Let's always remember how strong that temptation is, the, the temptation to be ashamed. Jesus issued a warning in Mark 8, 38. He said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And let us never forget, as we just studied there in Luke's Gospel, one of our Lord's closest disciples, Peter, when he felt threatened, when he felt in danger, he denied with great passion three times that he even knew who Jesus was. And I want to speak directly to everyone here who professes to be a Christian, especially to younger people. You need to decide now, ahead of time, that you'll never be ashamed of being a Christian. Many of your peers, even in professing conservative churches today, they will be traitors and they'll be cowards. And they will have no interest in being an outspoken disciple of Jesus Christ. The need to be cool, the need to fit in, is great when you're young. 
Barring a revival from on high, the price of being a believer in Jesus seems like it's about to take a big step forward in this country. It might. So I would ask, how precious is the gospel to us? How much does it occupy our thoughts once we leave this building? When we look at the people around us, what do we think about? Do we wonder if they know Jesus? Do we pray? Do we pray for them? Do we read our Bibles on a daily basis? Or are we one of those, yeah, I've been doing that good in my devotions lately, and I just haven't read the Bible in a few days. If Christian churches become banned in this country, and your family wants to meet in secret gatherings in people's basements or out in the woods or in a cave somewhere for worship, will you want to go with them? What if the danger was really great? What if you heard that local authorities put another pastor in jail because he condemned other religions, homosexuality, abortion, or drug use from his pulpit? Would you be willing to be in danger in order to worship Christ? Paul said, I am not ashamed. I am not ashamed of the gospel. We need to answer those questions now while we have freedom before we're forced to answer them under duress. Remember Peter? Peter's story, his denial, is such a soul-stirring thing. So confident, he'd never deny Christ. Even talking trash to the other, the other disciples. They may deny you, I never will. There was a martyr named Thomas Cranmer at the time of the Reformation. He signed a confession with his own hand, denying the true gospel out of fear of his life. He thought he was going to get killed. But after feeling the guilt of having signed that confession, he repented of it. The story of his martyrdom at the hands of the Inquisition is one of the most moving things you could ever read. He was sentenced to die once he recanted his recantation of the Christian faith. And when he was going to be burned at the stake, he walked up to the fire and he stuck his right hand into the fire, the hand which signed that confession, denying Jesus Christ. The Fox's Book of Martyrs records what happened, quote, Then it was that stretching out his right hand, he held it without shrinking in the fire until it was burnt to a cinder even before his body was injured, frequently exclaiming, this unworthy right hand. His body did abide the burning with such steadfastness that he seemed to have no more than the stake to which he was bound. His eyes were lifted up to heaven, and he repeated, this unworthy right hand, as long as his voice would allow him. And using the words of Stephen, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In the greatness of the flame, he gave up his spirit. It's one thing for an individual Christian to be ashamed of the gospel or to deny or, or compromise the gospel or to stay away from certain issues because it doesn't sell well, it doesn't make a big church. But what about the professing Christian church itself? What, what do we do when entire denominations decide to do this? What about whole local churches that do it? In this commentary on the book of Romans, R.C. Sproul points out that in the very last sermon that Luther preached two days before he died, he expressed great concern about the clarity of the gospel. He could see we're already losing it again. Luther said that anytime the gospel's preached with passion, with conviction, with clarity, it will bring conflict. And we don't like conflict by nature. We don't like conflict. We prefer peace and comfort. Because of this, the church in every generation will have a tendency to water down, de-emphasize, or hide the gospel, allowing it to be eclipsed by darkness, just like it was before the Great Reformation took place. I have read many thinkers, theologians, historians, and churchmen who love the gospel, preach the gospel, who are alive today, stand for the gospel, who believe firmly that the days that we live in right now in America are far darker 
than Europe was on the eve of the Reformation. At the time we live in is worse than Europe on the eve of the Reformation. When Luther died, that tendency to water down the gospel was already starting. In our country since the 60s and 70s, church, church growth marketing gurus have taught us that you got to itch people where they scratch if you want your churches to grow. We need to try to show people how useful the Bible is to daily life. It's a sad thing to consider that much of the conservative church in America today has fallen headlong into all of these betrayals of the gospel. Gone today is the holiness of God. Gone today is the wrath of God. Gone is the doctrine of sin. Gone is the blood of Christ. Gone is the doctrine of hell. Gone is God's clear condemnation of both homosexual desires and behaviors. God's condemnation of the murder of unborn children through abortion. We're not talking about that. We don't want to stir up strife. We don't want anyone to dislike us. God's condemnation of the rise of tyrannical governments. Gone are the exclusive claims of the gospel of Christ. Gone is a call to people to repent, to change, to repent of their sinful lifestyles, and to surrender to the lordship of Christ. Gone is the doctrine that God is the judge of all the earth. Gone is the great doctrine of the justification of sinners by faith alone, completely apart from works. Those things have all been jettisoned in the name of fattening the church rolls. Sproul said this, quote, God's priority is that people understand his holy character. People may not feel their need of that, but there's nothing that they need more than to have their minds exploded in the understanding of who God is. God forbid that we listen to Madison Avenue and those who tell us to become hucksters, which is what Luther was complaining about, end quote. What people want today, they want power. Power to manipulate, to control life. They want emotional experiences, a, a worship experience that gives me goosebumps. But the only place in which we find the power of God in Scripture is the gospel of Christ. God's power, his wisdom to the world, is shown in the bloody body of his son hanging on a cross as the substitute for sinners, and him preached as the only hope, as the only salvation of sinners. It is not in the articulate speech of the preacher. It's not in his jokes or his disarming personality. It's not in his ability to get people whipped up into an emotional fervor. We're told in Scripture, Paul has chosen the foolish things. God, God has chosen, we were told by Paul, God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God has chosen the foolishness of preaching and the foolishness of the cross to save those who believe. Why has he chosen those foolish means? So he gets all the credit. So he gets all the credit when it happens. When the church is faithful to the gospel, all the glory goes to God. All the glory goes to Christ. For every good fruit that happens from the salvation of souls to the rescuing and repairing of marriages to the sanctification of believers, soul is Christus, Christ alone. If people are saved, it's not because I used funny movie clips shown on a plasma screen TV. If people are saved, it's not because the preacher walked around on a stage with an earpiece on telling you emotional stories keeping you in stitches with little anecdotes, telling you all about himself, trying to act worldly, hip, cool. If people are saved, it was not because everyone's eyes were filled with tears because of emotional stories. The glory for the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of believers always and only goes to God because only God can bring those things to pass. And only the gospel 
can do it because the gospel is the power of God. Namely, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Martin Luther understood that perhaps better than anyone ever has in the entire history of the church. The reason this was so important to him was this. He had already tried everything. He had already tried everything other than Christ that the church of his day gave him. And he saw plainly there was no saving power in any of it. Luther had been to Rome. He had looked at religious relics. He had seen a tooth from one of the apostles. He had seen pieces of straw from Jesus' manger. He looked at, I'm not kidding you, a vial of breast milk from the Virgin Mary. He looked at nails from the cross of Christ. Luther said there were enough nails from the cross to shoe every horse in Saxony. He said he found enough wood from Jesus' cross to rebuild Noah's Ark. And even pieces of Jesus' diapers were on display. You know what he saw? There was no power in any of this. There's no life-changing power in it. There's no gospel. There's no salvation in any of it. But you know what? It attracted big crowds. And it gave people religious experiences. And they really liked it. It raised lots of money for the church. Huge throngs of people from all over the world came to see this stuff. But it was emptiness. It was a facade. It was a pious fake And all the while, there was Christ. The gospel, that's all we have, dear congregation. And if we don't have that, we're left without a weapon with which to assault the gates of hell. We're left with nothing to carry us through our heartache and through our losses. What looks like power to men, power sermons, power suits, power laser light shows, power fog, power music, power illustrations, power jokes, power this and power that. If it's not the gospel, there's no power in it. It may work to fill crystal cathedrals and remodeled warehouses, but it's an illusion. God is not glorified by thousands of unbelievers pretending to worship him. The great Charles Spurgeon, a man who was greatly used of God, a man who believed in the power of the preached gospel to save people, one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church in the 19th century, he wrote this, because you think anything that I've been mentioning to you, relics and power this and power that and trying to make the church updated and cool and popular, you think that's new? It's not. It's happened over and over and over again in church history. The only thing new today is the technology. It's the same old stuff. Spurgeon saw the same thing in 1850. And here's what he wrote. Some, I doubt not, have tinkered up Christ's teachings and Christ's gospel from a desire to do more good. Things are allowed to be said and done at revivals, which no one could defend. Do you notice at the present moment the way the gospel is put? I am uttering no criticism upon anyone in particular, but I continually read the exhortation, give your heart to Christ. The exhortation is good, but do not suffer it to cover the gospel word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. In the Sunday school, the teacher is often saying, dear child, love Jesus. Now, this is not the gospel. The love of Jesus comes as a fruit. But the gospel is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Listen to this now. If we think that we shall do more good by substituting another exhortation for the gospel command, we shall find ourselves landed in serious difficulties. If for a moment our improvements seem to produce a larger result than the old gospel, it will be the growth of mushrooms. It may even be the growth of toadstools. But it is not 
the growth of the trees of the Lord. End quote. In other words, I mean, you can ride the waves of pop culture and, and grow all sorts of stuff, but it's not going to be the trees of God. Look at verse 17 there in Romans 1. In it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In the gospel, the gift righteousness of God is revealed by faith from first to last. Some translators translate it by faith from first to last. That righteousness of God, what is that? What is the righteousness of God? That is the righteousness, the obedience of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about. The righteousness of God that is imputed to our account, that is attributed to our legal account. It's like money being transferred into our bank account. A whole life of perfect righteousness is transferred by God into our bank account before God, and then we are justified before God accordingly. It's the righteous standing before God that he gives to us. One of the commentators said this, the sense of the whole sentence as we understand it may be then set forth as follows. For in it, in the gospel being preached, a righteous status before God, which is God's gift, is being revealed. A righteous status, which is altogether by faith. And then he quotes Habakkuk, the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith. And when this passage says, shall live, that's talking about not live in their daily Christian life, like we all have to live by faith in our daily life. It's talking about the, the eternal life that we have before God on the day of judgment. The just shall live, they shall have eternal life by faith in this divine righteousness that is given to us by faith alone. We're transferred from death to life by faith alone. Not by our works, but by faith alone, because Christ alone. Not Mary, not saints, not works, penances, pilgrimages, purgatory, popes, or whatever. None of those things can save. Only Christ's righteousness is able to, and that's what faith lays hold of. The justified man lives to God. He is forgiven. He's justified in the sight of God by faith in Jesus alone because faith lays hold of Jesus. And once faith has laid hold of Jesus and is resting on Jesus, God puts Christ's righteousness to cover us like a robe. And anytime we die, we die clothed in his righteousness. And eternal life is our possession. Romans 1.17 is Martin Luther's favorite text. The righteousness of God, which is revealed in the gospel, is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is given to us as a free gift. Romans 5.17, Paul said, For if by the one man's offense, that's Adam's sin, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign through the one Jesus Christ. So I would ask you, the most important question you could have an answer to is, do you personally possess the gift of righteousness. Do you have it? How can you have it? Repent and then believe in Jesus Christ and stop believing in anything else. Don't trust in anything else. You rely on Christ and Christ alone. And by the way, that is why our salvation is certain. That's why it's the normal state of the Christian to know they have eternal life, to know that if I get hit by a bus driving home tonight and die, I'm going to heaven. Because Christ's righteousness has met God's requirement for me. And his cross is already satisfied for all my sins. Why did that bring so much relief to Luther? Because the man rightly lived in terror of the holiness of God. Because the Holy Spirit was convicting him of his sin. You know, one thing I learned when I was in seminary, did you know that there's only one other human being in the history of the world who has had more biographies written about him than a Luther? Can you guess who it is? Jesus. Luther, more books have been written on that guy than anyone else in history. And so many secular historians have said, he was crazy. He was nuts. The guy was out of his mind. And 
R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, has a chapter called The Insanity of Luther, pointing out he wasn't insane. He wasn't insane at all. He understood clearly what most other people don't understand. If God is holy and I really am sinful, I'm lost, unless I have Christ's righteousness in my account. Finally, he had a sense of peace with God. The Holy Spirit of God convicted him of his sins. The only remedy to the conscience was just supernaturally convinced of his sin and misery by the Holy Spirit is the gift righteousness of God, the righteousness of Christ and his cross satisfying for all my sins. And once that poor, depressed German monk saw the gospel for what it truly was, a free gift given to repentant sinners by belief alone, completely apart from works, he never let go of it. Or rather, Christ never let go of him. If you don't fully understand why you need the gift of righteousness, I want to encourage you, go home and read Exodus 20 tonight. Look at the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Have you ever had anything that took your affection away from God? You've broken that commandment. You shall not make any graven images. You ever lifted up your soul to an idol? Not talking about a statue or a, a silver idol or anything like that, but anything that you pursue with more vigor, more passion, that you love more than God? You've broken that commandment. You ever taken the Lord's name in vain? You realize it's taking the Lord's name in vain to believe anything that's incorrect about God. You've ever said a single false thing about who God is, ever gotten the meaning of any passage of Scripture wrong? You've taken his name in vain. Do you always keep the Sabbath day holy? The whole day set apart for the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so much as is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Did you do that today? Neither did I. Honor your father and mother. Be always treated with perfect righteousness. All of your equals, your inferiors, and your superiors. Your mom and dad never lied to them. We used to do those good news clubs. Little kids would try their best to convince me they'd never lied to their parents. That they'd never disobeyed their mom and dad. Unless they had a younger sibling with them. Yeah, you did. You did here and here and here and here. You should not commit murder. You ever been driving recklessly, foolishly? You're guilty of breaking that commandment. You put other people's lives in danger. You put your own life in danger. Adultery, have you been perfectly chaste your whole life? If you're married, single-minded devotion to your wife all the time. Mind never wanders, ever, not once. I had a Jehovah's Witness tell me he'd never lusted after a woman on my doorstep. The guy was at least 10 years older than me. And I laughed, and he was offended. You ever stolen anything? Are you a perfect steward of all your money, all your assets, all your stuff? Have you always told the truth? You ever lied? You ever borne false witness? How about coveting? Have you always been perfectly content with everything in your life? Everything about yourself, the way you look, your talents, your gifts. You've never been jealous of another person ever. You've always rejoiced that other people are better than you are at everything that you've ever put your hands to. You've ever been discontent at all in your life, and you've broken that commandment too. Why do we need someone else's righteousness? Because God is perfectly holy and righteous and just, and we are not. And Christ alone entered into that law, entered into that broken covenant of works, and achieved it for us, and he gives us that righteousness when we rest upon him. That's the good news. You know, America today is dominated by relativism. You know what relativism is? Think of relativism like this. Relativism is sitting on a tree branch and then sawing off the tree branch that you're sitting on. It's the absolute belief that there are no absolutes. So if relativism is true, it's false. Because it can't be true then, can it? 
And yet the majority of people that you run into, lock eyes with, see at the grocery store, see at work, are relativists. You have your truth, I have mine. What difference does it make if it works for you? The real question before us is a little more basic than that. I want to encourage you, when you hear people say that, as you will, you have your truth, I have mine. What's true for you is not true for me. The real question is, what are you going to do with your guilt before God? You need to know that every single human being on earth feels guilt. Every single human being you will ever talk to feels guilt about something. We all know that we have sinned. People say, I was raised in the church, but now I'm an agnostic, now I'm a Buddhist, now I'm a Unitarian, I'm an atheist. That's nice. What are you going to do with your guilt? What are you going to do with your guilt? That nagging sense of guilt that we have, that we've done things that are wrong, it's God's wake-up call to us. That one day we're going to be summoned out of our grave, whether we're in the mood for it or not, without our informed consent, and brought before God on the day of judgment to give an account to him of our thoughts, words, deeds, and motives throughout our entire life. And Jesus Christ alone can give to you as a free gift what you must have, do not have, and could never earn, a perfect robe of righteousness with which to cover your sin and to grant you forgiveness, and a not guilty verdict before God on the day of judgment. Those who have this gift and have the wonderful, divinely given sense of assurance, and those alone, we can really say with the Apostle Paul, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul even says, I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better Only a true Christian can say that and really mean it. To die is gain. Why? Because our real treasure is somewhere else. Our real treasure is elsewhere. Reserved in heaven for us. While we're kept here by the power of God through faith for that salvation. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Solus Christus. The only redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ. Who being the eternal son of God became man. And so was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures in one person forever. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of your Son, for the gift of eternal life, and for that gift of the very righteousness of God by which we're justified before you and have a legal title to eternal life. May our lives reflect that we've been called into union with Jesus, and may his name be glorified in